Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're joining us this week. And if this is your first time, welcome. We're hoping after our giveaway that we had that we maybe have a few new listeners. So if you're new, we hope you'll enjoy the bumpy ride that we're going to have today. Oh, is it another gruesome case? It is. I thought you were going to take a break. I was. Okay, so confession time. I originally had a different case picked out for today. The other Canadian case that I had mentioned earlier that I was working on But I felt like my last two Canadian cases, the Greyhound bus and the Anthill kids, were pretty heavy. And this new Canadian case I want to do is really horrible as well. So instead, I thought, oh, I'll go a different direction today, thinking this way I wouldn't have too many extra horrific cases in a row. Well, it's safe to say that that backfired because the case I ended up choosing for you today is pretty bad. Oh, no. Yeah, it's worse than I originally remembered when I first learned about this killer. And so, like I said, it will be another bumpy ride. Oh. And I still have that Canadian case that I'm working on. (laughs) So we're not through it yet. Christy does all the gruesome, gruesome ones. I do tend to gravitate towards those for some reason. (laughs) But like I said in Melissa's case last week, is we're going a different direction than we have before on Buried Motives. And so today we're going to be covering a fetish killer. Oh. And I don't think we've covered a fetish before, have we? I don't think so. No. So tell me how you dug deep into those motives. It starts really young. Really? Which is shocking. Yeah. Okay. So I just wanted to first explain that a fetish in this sense is defined as a form of sexual desire in which gratification is strongly linked to a particular object, activity, or a part of the body other than the sexual organs. Hmm. So those people that have feet fetishes. Right. Oh, I can't do feet. (laughs) Then you're not going to like this case. Oh, no. (laughs) It's feet? No. Well, not quite, but the killer we will be discussing this week has a fetish that is linked to an object. High-heeled shoes, to be exact. Oh. So it goes with your feet. Oh, you picked this one on purpose, didn't I didn't. You? I didn't know you had a thing with feet. <laughs> or did I? I think you did. <laughs> I Maybe I did. But that isn't why I picked this case. Okay. I just thought we haven't done a fetish killer, and I thought this would be an interesting one for us to discuss. All right, well, tell me more. All right, so this American serial killer has been given the name the Lust Killer, as well as the Shoe Fetish Slayer. Have you heard of him? I haven't heard of him, no. But I tend to stay away from feet in general. That's true. (laughs) Well, you might be cringing a little throughout this case then. Before we start, I do want to point out that finding women's high-heeled shoes attractive is not what we are talking about. It's not the same thing as having a deviant fetish about them. This goes way above and beyond a simple attraction. And absolutely no hate towards any of our listeners who might have a harmless fetish of their own. Oh, I have many, many high heel shoes. Half of them I don't wear because they're (laughs) too high for me, but I love them. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to differentiate between, you know, an attraction and a fetish. And some fetishes, even if you have one, are healthy and okay. But this fetish goes beyond that healthy and okay level. Okay. Our creepy dirtbag killer today is Jerome Henry Brudos. He went by Jerry, and so that is how I will refer to him throughout the case. His parents were Eileen and Henry Brudos. His father, Henry, was a small man. He was only about five foot four and seemed to have small man's disease. 
Oh, that's even smaller than last week's killer. I know. They keep getting littler and littler. This is just his dad. But he was confrontational, quick to anger, and he could be abusive. Eileen, his mother, was a force to be reckoned with. She was stern, and Jerry would later describe her as being stubborn, selfish, and egotistic. Oh, that's not a good way to describe your mother. It's not, but she comes by it honestly. Okay. He said she was the type of woman who, quote, never, never wore high heels. Oh. She also would abuse Jerry both physically and emotionally. Dirtbag mama. Dirtbag mama, for sure. Between his two parents, Jerry openly admitted to favoring his father. Part of the issue with his mother is that when she was pregnant with Jerry, she had her heart set on having a baby girl. (laughs) And this was the same as Melissa's case last week. If you haven't listened to it yet, you should. But Eileen had already given birth to a son named Larry a few years prior. When Jerry was born in Webster, South Dakota on January 31st, 1939, Eileen was openly disappointed and never really got over the fact that Jerry was not what she wanted. Oh no, that is never good. It's not. Larry, Jerry's brother, and I was like, Larry and Jerry, Jerry. (laughs) like that would be hard, but Larry would absolutely be raised as the favorite child. Which would be so hard for any kid to endure. And I was thinking about it and I thought most kids claim that their sibling is the favorite anyways. But in this case, it is true. Larry was allowed to do what he wanted, while Jerry had to do the chores. His mother would say it was because Larry was gifted. He needed more time to work on his schoolwork and such. It sounded like all the men, including Jerry's father, were kind of scared of his mother. And so they just let her rule. That sounds like an awesome household. Yeah, she ruled the roost. (laughs) But unfortunately, that meant that the Bruno's household was not a very affectionate one because she was not an affectionate woman. If mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. That's right. But if you were Larry, you had a great childhood. If you were Jerry, not so much. Oh, she treated them that differently? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Larry was allowed to just do what he wanted and was doted on. And Jerry was kind of like the male version of Cinderella in his home. Oh, Jerry would be the victim of some pretty serious trauma starting at the age of five. So I wasn't kidding when I said this starts young. Because Jerry was so neglected, he was allowed to just roam free and play wherever he wanted during the day. His mom didn't really care to keep an eye on him or spend any time with him. So this is a time, though, when kids did get to just roam free. Roam free, yeah. Five is pretty little. Yeah, but even then, I think I look at the Woodcock case, like the kids that he picked up were like four and five year olds. They were out in the streets just playing. That's true. Same with the Mary Bell case. Yeah. Yeah, they were. But doing that ends you up on our podcast. That's right. (laughs) You are right, though. The differences between nowadays and back then, it was much more acceptable. Mm -hmm. Often Jerry would go and play at the local junkyard, or as we call them in Canada, the dump. One day at the age of five, Jerry had been playing at the dump when he came across a pair of women's high-heeled shoes. They were a shiny patent leather, open-toed, open-heeled, and they had a strap that did up above the ankles. Ooh. Young Jerry was mesmerized by these shoes. He excitedly carried his newfound treasure all the way home. When he arrived home, he put on the shoes and started to walk around in them, as so many five-year-olds would. It didn't take long for Jerry's mother to see what her unwanted son was doing. To say that she overreacted is an understatement. Eileen flew off the handle. She began to scream intensely at Jerry. She called him wicked and ordered him to take the shoes back to the dump where he had found them. 
Wicked for what reason? Because he had dressed up like a girl or because he had brought home something from the dump? Because he had dressed up like a girl. Oh, okay. It's that time frame. It is that time frame, yeah. So there's no RuPaul's Drag Race yet. No. No. And And he wouldn't know any different. He had never seen high heel shoes before. Yeah, it was an innocent thing. Mm -hmm. Totally innocent. Any five-year-old would be excited to put on the shoes that he had just found. It was like a treasure. Mm -hmm. He was excited about it. And he wasn't hiding it because he didn't think it was wrong. Nope. And it shouldn't have been. She should not have reacted that way. Jerry recalled later that he was so confused. He didn't understand what he had done wrong, but he couldn't bring himself to part with the shoes. Instead, Jerry hid the shoes and would pull them out to play with when no one was paying attention to him. Unfortunately, one day his mother again caught him wearing the shoes. Oh, no. Uh Uh-huh. It's even worse the second time, isn't it? It is. She became so enraged that she took the shoes outside and burned them in front of Jerry and then sent him to his room. And Jerry would later say that this became a core memory for him. Yeah. A valued possession. And she just burned it in front of him. Yeah. I told you to take those back. And she was screaming top of her lungs. You know, I'll teach you. I'm going to burn these shoes. So does this teach him to keep his fetish secret? He does. Yeah. This is just the tip of the iceberg. But this is his first fascination with women's shoes. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, too. But had she reacted different, experts believe that maybe he wouldn't have even had this fetish with shoes. So does he become a shoe salesman? No, he doesn't. What? That would have been a healthy outlet. That would have been. That's true. He could have been touching women's feet and putting shoes on them all day. Jerry, if we could only rewind and tell him. (laughs) Interlocked with this core memory about the shoes are two other things from when he was five. First, a woman neighbor of theirs, Jerry remembers how nice she was to him. It was the only place he felt loved. She unfortunately became very ill and could no longer spend time with Jerry. Oh, So that little outlet was taken away from him at the same time. Second, again at this same time, Jerry was best friends with a little girl who ended up getting tuberculosis and died when she was only five years old as well. Oh, that is sad. But again, that's the time. It is. This death was extremely hard on Jerry. He remembers grieving about it for a long time, and it doesn't sound like he received much comfort at home about it. So at five years old, these three things really intertwined to the point where later people would say that he couldn't talk about one experience without talking about the others. That makes sense, though. It does. Those are all big things to happen in a five-year-old's world. For sure. When you already feel unloved and you know your mom didn't Mm -hmm. want you. And those are your two support people. Right. Trying to support the family, Jerry's father moved them around a lot for work. And as a result, he wasn't home much. When Jerry was in grade one, they were living in Riverton, California. Jerry's grade one teacher would often wear high heels to school. Reportedly, Jerry tried to steal one of her extra pairs that she kept under her desk. They were found in his backpack before he could take them home. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking this, of course, is going to be reported to his mother. The teacher didn't really make a big deal of it, thankfully. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. She just she found them in his backpack. He hadn't taken them home. And he's still little. Yeah. Six. Yeah. He's grade one. Yeah. So she didn't make too big of a deal about it. Experts would later comment about how strikingly young Jerry was to become obsessed with women's shoes. I kind of noted this already, but Mm -hmm. they explained that it was more likely about his mother's overreaction to the shoes than the shoes themselves. They became exciting and forbidden fruit to young Jerry. He didn't understand the arousal that it caused inside of him. Never create a forbidden fruit. No, do not. (laughs) Jerry was sick a lot as a child. He had measles, various infections, and violent headaches, which resulted in him failing the second grade, even though he had an above-average IQ. 
Why did he have so many headaches? I'm not sure. And that continues even into his adulthood, the oh. violent headaches. His brother Larry was popular and excelled in school. Jerry got along okay with his older brother Larry, but it was noted that Larry was noticeably more conventionally attractive than Jerry. Jerry was short and stocky, red hair, blue eyes, freckles, and wore glasses. And he was described as just kind of being plain. Sex was a taboo subject in his home growing up. So as he got older, he didn't have anyone to really talk to about his urges or what sex was all about. My youngest just started sex ed and he was so open about it last night telling me all about what they had learned and everything and I thought it was awesome. It's so funny how our kids react so differently. I think it's great when your kids can openly talk Yeah, because they need that. Well, and wouldn't you rather them ask questions of you than ask questions of their friends? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's for get sure. the correct information, not the made up stuff. <laughs> yeah. And I think that would invite a feeling of safety and security that no subject is off topic. Mm-hmm. I can talk to my parents about these things. Yeah. Unfortunately, Jerry didn't have that. And this meant that as his shoe fetish increased, he was left on his own to figure out why he felt the way that he did. That's too bad. Mm hmm. While still a child, around the age of seven, Jerry's parents invited another family over for dinner. The couple had two teenage daughters and a son around Jerry's age. During dinner, one of the daughters said she wasn't feeling well, so Eileen told her that she was welcome to go lay down in one of the bedrooms, which she did. This daughter had been wearing high-heeled shoes, and Jerry was enthralled to the point of waiting until she fell asleep and then sneaking into the room where she was napping. Oh, no. Remember, he's only seven. Okay, so he's not going to do anything to her. No, but Jerry does carefully remove one of the shoes from the sleeping girl's foot. He had unexplained feelings being ignited inside of him, and he desperately wanted those shoes. Upon removing the shoe, the girl woke up. And I did read different reactions regarding the teenage girl. Some said because of his young age, she viewed the ordeal as fairly innocent. Perhaps he was just helping her since she had fallen asleep with her shoes on. Others said it freaked her out and that she shooed him out of the room. Pun intended. (laughs) But regardless, it was a bit of an ordeal. Yeah. So he's getting braver too, like at seven years old, to take the shoe off of this young girl. And was his mom aware that he had done this? There was no reports of retribution for his actions for that. And if the girl thought that he was just being kind, like, oh, she fell asleep with her shoes, I'll take them off for her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's not going to go tattling. No. When Jerry was starting to hit puberty, his family moved to Grants Pass, Oregon. While here, Jerry met a friend who had sisters. The two boys would sneak into their rooms to explore the girls' undergarments. Jerry's fetish would now grow to include women's underwear. Is that a normal thing for boys to do? I hope not. That's gross. I don't know. I only have daughters. (laughs) I don't know. I don't think that's normal. Like, I could see them having a natural curiosity about it. And maybe it didn't mean as much to the brother as it did to Jerry. But even just to search it out is weird. I don't know. Maybe I don't understand the male mind. No. No, because what teenage girl would go and try to find male underwear? No. None. Zero. (laughs) We're assuming. When Jerry was 13 in 1952, the Brudos family moved to Salem, Oregon, a place called Wallace Pond. One day, Jerry came across a box in his older brother's room because he had to clean, Mm -hmm. right? So he was cleaning in his brother's room, I believe, and came across this box. Inside the hidden box were pinup pictures and drawings of naked women that his brother Larry had drawn. And they always have high heel shoes on. Yep. All the pinups do. Yeah. Because it makes your legs look good and lifts your butt. That's right. 
Jerry was fascinated with these drawings. And as his luck would have it, while he was studying them, he was caught by his mother. Eileen was furious. Oh, no. You can imagine if she thought he yeah. was wearing the shoes at five was wicked, what she would feel now. So she punished Jerry harshly. Jerry never told his mother that the pictures were his brother's and just took the punishment himself. He probably thought that she wouldn't believe him anyway. Yeah, I'm sure she wouldn't have. Jerry was also punished at the age of 16 when he had his first wet dream and his mother saw the remnants on his bed sheets. That's not even under case control. I know, but she just was, that's wicked. Anything to do with sex. They didn't talk about it, nothing. It was very taboo in the household. Wow. What was her upbringing? Did they anybody say? No, I did not find that. It's hard to imagine a time that's different than ours because typically today we're aware that those things are just biological things that happen during puberty. And so I don't think anybody would today would still punish their children for having a wet dream. No, I would hope not. Yeah. Again, I have daughters. <laughs> that's foreign to me. <laughs> I can't imagine that happening. Like you said, this was out of Jerry's control. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because as we go through the case, I didn't really put this in here, but for a long time, that's the only times that he could complete was during his wet dreams. He had a hard time with self-gratification. Interesting, because that was the other guy too. I didn't put it in there, but he was actually impotent. Okay, Jerry's not impotent, but he does have a hard time with masturbation. Oh, not with women, though? Oh, no, Jerry can with women. Okay. It's just through, I, I hadn't put this in here because it's just during his, like, teenage, early adulthood time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, no kidding. If you think you're going to be punished for it. Yeah. Unfortunately, Jerry's view of women was becoming more and more tainted. He attempted to dig a tunnel into a hill on their farm property. He wanted to catch a girl and put her in there so he could do whatever he wanted to her and have her as a slave. Oh, wow. And what age is this fantasy happening at? This is like early teenage years. Huh. Yeah. That's quite the fantasy. It is. And allegedly when his mother saw the tunnel, she made him fill it back up. Did she know what it was for? I don't think so. She just caught him digging this tunnel into the side of the hill. Like, and, this is useless. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't pay much attention to Jerry. So just like, fill that hole back in. Okay. Yeah. And so that wrecked his plans of capturing a girl and keeping her as a slave. But these urges to capture women start early then. They do. Mm. All these urges are starting really young. Jerry's sick obsession with women, shoes, and underwear would only grow he continued to steal high heel shoes as well as bras and underwear from his neighbor's clotheslines. Not the shoes, but the underwear and the bras were on the clotheslines. And he would eventually escalate to sometimes attacking women to steal the shoes right from their feet. What? Yeah, that's coming. <laughs> so it starts off where he's just stealing them, but then eventually that's not enough. If he sees a woman with a pair of shoes that really turn him on, he will follow her and attack her and take those shoes. But it has nothing to do with the women. It's all about the shoes. At that point. Okay. Yeah, we do escalate a lot. So you can see how it's just gradually growing with Jerry. Jerry also enjoyed trying the undergarments on. He would fondle the underwear and try to masturbate into them, but he was never able to fully complete the task. He later said that touching the undergarments gave him, quote, a funny feeling. A funny feeling like turned him on or a funny feeling like he felt funny and then he couldn't get turned on? Like... I think turned him on. Okay. Yeah. He's quite obsessed with them. Okay. Yeah. So I'm assuming it's arousal. But he does not know anything about sex. He's just trying to figure all of this out. And now he's put in this fetish of shoes and underwear. When he was almost 17, they moved close to the Oregon State University. One of Jerry's neighbors was an 18-year-old girl. Jerry stole her underwear from inside their house. But he was doing this to a lot of the houses nearby. Does he practice any voyeurism too? 
No, because at this point, it's more about the objects. It's the fetish more than about the girls themselves. Okay. Yeah. But that will change. And he's more about him wearing the underwear than them wearing the underwear. At this point. Okay. But hang on to your hats because that's going to change quickly here. It's just like a silence of the lambs. <laughs> it's funny you shall say that because <laughs> there's a connection to silence at the lambs that I will tell you at the very end. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So hang in there. <laughs> So after Jerry had stolen his 18-year-old neighbor's underwear, he still couldn't fully finish masturbating with her underwear. He thought, well, I know her. Maybe I'll be able to. He began to desire a picture of a real naked girl instead. He was still curious about what a woman's body actually looks like in real life. He'd only seen the drawings. And so this was now his next plan in place. Mm. News had gotten out around the neighborhood that some creep was stealing women's underwear. And so Jerry decided to use this to his advantage. He went up to the same 18-year-old girl and told her that he was working with the police to try and catch the perpetrator. (laughs) This teenager is working with the police? Yeah. He said he was hired to work undercover because he was young, he was around all these kids, and so it was a good way for him to get information. And he's smart. (laughs) Yeah. This was obviously false, but the girl was so upset that some of her things had been stolen, so she agreed to meet Jerry at his home on a specific day to discuss the investigation. Jerry planned it for a day when no one else would be home. Because Jerry didn't look like much of a threat, the young woman agreed to meet with him. He was an awkward, plain-looking guy with acne. He had no game with the ladies. When the girl arrived at Jerry's house and knocked on his door, he hollered out to her to come upstairs. So she did. When she got upstairs, Jerry jumped out wearing a mask and holding a knife. He ordered her to take off all her clothes. Jerry threatened her with the knife, and so she did what he said. Jerry proceeded to instruct the girl how to pose, and he took an entire roll of film of her naked body. Oh, wow. Remember, we're not digital yet. Yep. Back then, you had to actually take a whole roll of film. How do you actually take that to get developed, though, and nobody noticed? I don't know, because he does get them developed. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't know if he developed them himself. It didn't really say, but he did get them developed. Hmm. Mm-hmm. When the camera was full, he took off and ran out the door. The girl frantically put her clothes back on, and as she was about to leave, Jerry ran back into the house without the mask on. He asked her if she was okay. Oh, he's acting like the informant. Yeah. So he's acting like someone was there before him, like he just arrived on the scene. So he runs out, throws away the mask, and comes running back in as she's coming running down the stairs to leave. He tells this girl that a man who was wearing a mask had trapped him in the barn, and he was just able to get out. He tried to pretend that he had no idea what had just happened. But this girl knew exactly what had happened, and she knew that Jerry was the knife-yielding masked man who had just assaulted her. Well, he was probably still in the exact same clothes. Yeah, same height, same (laughs) voice. Yeah, dumb. I thought you said he was above average intelligence. He is above average intelligence, but he just didn't think that went through. He thought he would trick her, I guess. Yeah. The young woman was able to play it cool long enough to get away from Jerry and leave the house. Sadly, she didn't report the incident at that time, and Jerry just assumed that he had fooled her. This girl later told police, quote, I knew who it was all the time. I wasn't fooled by the mask and his phony story about being locked in the barn, but I was afraid of him. I was scared if I told, he would find out and he would kill me. Oh, really? So it had rattled her enough that she just got out of there and didn't look back. She was no longer viewing him as this innocent teenager that was helping the police, that's for sure. Well, and you're an 18-year-old girl and someone has just made you strip naked and taken pictures of you? Mm -hmm. Like, that's very traumatic. Jerry quickly developed the film so he could really see what a female body looked like naked. 
he was too nervous during the ordeal to be able to fully enjoy it. Because he had this mask on, he's just mm-hmm. trying to take the pictures as quick as he could. His first reaction was that she looked funny. It wasn't what he was expecting. But he used the photographs in combination with her underclothing to try and pleasure himself. And did it work? Didn't say. <laughs> <laughs> that was the whole purpose of it, though, It was right? the whole purpose of it, yeah. But he was a little bit disappointed with mm. the outcome. Because he's probably looking at those pinups and thinking that that's going to look the same as this poor, terrified girl who's like crying and being forced to pose for these pictures. How many males have been disappointed when the woman they are with is not like a pinup? <laughs> right. When you take that push-up bra off, it doesn't look the same as it looks inside the push-up bra. <laughs> and especially with all the airbrushing nowadays. Yeah. And he's had no experience with a girl mm-hmm. or a woman at this point, right? This would have been the first woman that he saw naked. Almost a year later, in April of 1956, 17-year-old Jerry was able to convince a girl who was the same age as him to let him give her a ride home. Jerry started to act like they were on a date, and the girl became confused. She had only accepted a ride and did not think that this was a date. (laughs) So he's like, hey, do you want a ride? I think they knew each other from school. And if I remember correctly, I think she was coming home from work or something like that. And he's like, oh, I can drive you home. And and then he's acting all coy and doting like this is a date. And she's like, a weirdo, what are you doing? Like, you're giving me a ride home. (laughs) Awkward. Yes. As I'm sure you can gather, Jerry had no plans to take this girl home. Instead, he drove to a deserted farm. When they stopped, he pulled her from the car and started to viciously beat her. He ordered her to take off her clothes, but the girl fought back. So did the beating happen before she started to fight back? Because beating doesn't seem like it's within his character right now. No, but he escalates to that. Okay. This is about a year later. He's still up to his shenanigans of stealing Mm -hmm. the clothing and shoes and that kind of stuff. I don't know if he thought he was going to woo her by acting like he was on a date. And so when she was turning him down, I think he got angry. Mm. They went to this deserted farm. He pulls her out, starts beating her, telling her to take off her clothes. And she was fighting back. She's like, heck to the no. Just so scary, too. Mm -hmm. Like going to a deserted farm, no one's going to hear you even scream there. By what can only be explained as a miracle, a couple just happened to drive by the abandoned farm and saw the car pulled over. So they stopped to help. The girl could barely speak because of the blows to her mouth. Jerry told the couple that she had fallen from the car, and that's why she was injured and so hysterical. (laughs) Yes, those kind of injuries happen just to your mouth. And who just falls out of the car? (laughs) This isn't like a toddler who accidentally opened the door. This is a 17-year-old girl. So they didn't believe him? No, the couple did not believe him. And when they said, yeah, we're not buying that, he said, well, actually, a different man was attacking her when I drove by, so I stopped to help her. So then he's starting to act like, oh, no, I'm the hero. Someone else was doing it. Get your story straight, Jerry. That's right. Thankfully, the couple's BS meter was working and they insisted on taking this girl with them. They did not believe what he was saying. But surprisingly, Jerry agreed to go back to their house as well. And once there, the couple called the police. The police came and subsequently searched Jerry's bedroom. There, they found the women's undergarments and shoes that he had stolen, as well as the pictures he had developed. Jerry said that he had purchased the underwear himself, and he tried to explain the pictures away by saying a different boy took the pictures and threatened to beat Jerry up if he didn't get them developed, but he hadn't returned for the pictures yet. Again, I thought he was smart. Right? Yeah, that is the most ridiculous story. No one's buying it, Jerry. It would have been much more believable. He'd be like, yeah, that was my girlfriend. (laughs) Yeah, but she was crying. This was that 18-year-old girl neighbor. Yeah. She was crying. You could tell it was not a consensual thing, right? Gotcha. 
The girl he assaulted had bad bruising and a broken nose. During this investigation, the girl in the pictures finally came forward and told her story about what Jerry had done to her as well. Jerry was arrested for assault and battery, and upon investigation, he was committed to Oregon State Hospital for an evaluation and treatment. Doctors had a difficult time diagnosing Jerry. One said his issue was, quote, adjustment reaction with sexual deviation and fetishism. A different doctor diagnosed Jerry with a, quote, borderline schizophrenic reaction. Through this whole case, no doctors can really diagnose or agree what is happening with Jerry. It's hard to get two professionals to agree on the same thing. Right. And this is the 50s, Mm -hmm. where it's probably not as cut and dry. And they both could be right, really. Adjustment Mm -hmm. reaction with sexual deviation and fetishism. Definitely sounds like it. A borderline schizophrenic reaction. They both could be in there. Mm Mm-hmm. On April 16, 1956, one psychiatrist made a written statement regarding Jerry. I'll paraphrase just some of it because it was pretty long. The doctor said Jerry did not appear to be mentally ill. His speech, thought, and psychomotor activities were within normal limits. His flow of thinking was relevant, logical, and coherent, but tended to be evasive due to embarrassment. He was depressed, but without signs of suicide, homicide, or destructive urges. Without Um, homicide? And without destructive urges. And I wrote in my notes, um, what? (laughs) Because that's exactly what got him into the hospital here, is these destructive urges. The doctor continues, he had a hard time controlling his temper and was not fearful over what would happen to him and felt some guilt over getting caught, but not for taking the naked photographs. His intellect was deemed functional, but his insight and judgment were questionable. It was also noted that Jerry himself felt like something was wrong with him and wanted to find out what it was so that he could be cured. Hmm, That's interesting. It is. Having no self-preservation instinct is interesting. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen very often. And he had no guilt over what he had done just of getting caught, which is like Dirtbag 101. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Jerry did receive treatment in the hospital psychiatric ward, but he was allowed to go to school during the day at North Salem High. He received treatment for almost nine months. His parents insisted that they didn't want him back home until he was cured. It sounded like they were not that supportive or invested in Jerry's quote-unquote recovery. They're probably just happy that somebody else was dealing with the problem. Right. Eventually, Jerry was allowed to leave the hospital. They said he was not considered dangerous, but that he needed to grow up. Unfortunately, not a lot was known yet about the development of a serial sexual predator. Because the signs were there, and he talked openly about some of his sadistic urges. One of those urges being keeping a dead woman in a freezer. What? Yeah. And he's telling people this and they're, what was that statement? That he has no homicidal tendencies? Right. And that he's not considered dangerous. And just needs, he just needs to grow up. I don't know. If my son or my patient was saying they want to keep dead women in a freezer. Might want to pay attention to that clue. Yeah. I don't know that I would be sending them home. Jerry was able to graduate high school. He was especially gifted in math and science. He also had a talent for electronics. But not for social. Not for social. (laughs) And this is kind of interesting that true to common serial killer fashion, Jerry was not remembered later by any of his teachers or peers. In fact, at the end of his killing spree, one of his defense attorneys actually went to school with Jerry but had zero recollection of him. He just fit in and melded into the background. Yep. He was just like the wallpaper. Yep. Which is quite common Mm -hmm. for serial killers. Jerry went to post-secondary school. First, he attended Oregon State University, and then he went to Salem Technical Vocational School to become an electronics technician. 
On March 9, 1959, he joined the U.S. Army and was sent to both Fort Ord, California and Fort Gordon in Georgia. Ooh, military history. Yeah, that's another sign, isn't it? Not a sign, but it happens often Mm -hmm. in their past. While in the Army, Jerry received advanced training in the Signal Corps, which is a branch of the United States Army that creates and manages communication and information systems for the command and control of combined armed forces. If Jerry wasn't such a dirtbag, this would have been a fitting career for him. Mm -hmm. He really excelled at it. However, while in the army, Jerry started to make up a story about how a Korean woman kept coming into his bed at night wanting Jerry to have sex with her. He said he had to beat her off of him. Needless to say, no one bought what he was selling. And due to this bizarre behavior, Jerry was discharged from the army. I'm surprised he liked the army at all. There's no high heels there. No, that's true. And maybe that's why he's making up this fantasy in <laughs> to his get mind. Out. Yeah. yeah. But they're all sleeping in the same barrack. They're all there. And he says every night he has to literally beat a Korean woman off of him because she wants him so bad. So they're like, okay, bye, Jerry. Have a nice life. You are weird, Jerry. Yeah. Move along. (laughs) Next. Regardless of his awkwardness with women, when Jerry turned 22 in 1961, he married the first woman that he truly loved and respected, 17-year-old Darcy Metzler. Oh, the poor woman. Yeah. It sounds like they were set up by a mutual friend, and she was just really sweet, and he actually did take to her. Hmm. Darcy is sometimes referred to as Ralphine. I'm not quite sure why, but I will refer to her as Darcy, as that is what she went by. Darcy's parents were not big fans of Jerry, and it is reported that their disapproval may have made her dote on him even more. Oh, the forbidden fruit. (laughs) Exactly. Jerry and Darcy moved together to Portland, Oregon. They had two children together, first a daughter and then a son. And for a while, things were going well. Their first couple of years were okay. However, before long, Jerry's sadistic urges would return. Honeymoon period's over. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like it happens even before the second one is born. Mm -hmm. There's some trouble in paradise. But it gets a little weird. Reportedly, Jerry asked Darcy to always be naked when inside their house. Completely naked, except for one thing. Can you guess what that one thing was? High heel shoes. Of course. Can you imagine cooking and cleaning and taking care of a baby without any clothing on and always wearing high-heeled shoes? She actually did it? She did it. What? Yep, she did it. Eventually, though, Darcy tired of this. She talked about how bad her feet were hurting, like always wearing high-heeled shoes. And as their daughter got older, she convinced Jerry that she should probably wear clothing. And so Jerry agreed. Could you imagine the mailman dropping off? I know. Vacuuming. You got to make sure your blinds are closed all the time. And it's not all that attractive either. Like I was like, you're squatting to clean a toilet. You know, like (laughs) naked. Like, no. It's like that Seinfeld episode. Oh, with the pickles. (laughs) And she's opening the pickles. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. But it sounds like she did do it for quite a while. Wow. I'm impressed. Mm -hmm. I would have been hard. No, man. (laughs) Yeah. I'd be like, you do it. You go first. (laughs) But Jerry maybe would have liked that. Who knows? To strap on the high heel shoes again? For sure. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com.
come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. There were signs of trouble between the two. When Darcy didn't want Jerry in the room, well, she gave birth to their son. So -hmm. he was there for the daughter, but by the time the son was born, she didn't want him in there. Jerry was up to no good. He returned to his old ways of sneaking into women's homes and stealing their bras, underwear, and high-heeled shoes. Soon, Jerry escalated to attacking women for these items. In May of 1967, Jerry followed a woman home when he became obsessed with the shoes she was wearing. He attacked her in her home and strangled her to the point of unconsciousness. While she lay there unconscious, Jerry raped her. Oh, that's a new escalation. Yeah, and this unlocked a new fetish for Jerry, having sex with an unconscious woman. He left her there but took her shoes. He wouldn't be connected with this attack until after he would be caught. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess semen DNA testing wasn't a thing then. No. To store these items without his wife finding out, Jerry made himself a workroom. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was basically his garage. He had a fridge and a freezer in there, and the rest of his family was forbidden to enter. He even locked the room so that they could not go inside. And I read in one account that he convinced his wife that it was needed so that her and the children wouldn't hurt themselves with all the dangerous tools and such that he had out there. Apparently, he even set up an intercom system for Darcy to use to communicate with her husband instead of entering the room. Warning, warning. Yeah, I wrote, red flag, baby girl, red flag. (laughs) (laughs) So he didn't even want her to come in, like to open the door, dinner's ready, or the phone, whatever. He didn't even want that. She had to intercom first, and then he would come out of the room. Like they were not allowed in there, and it was locked up, and only he had the key. That is ridiculous. It is. Did she know what he was doing in there? We're going to talk about that. Okay. But at this point in time, he's just created this so that he can start storing these items. Mm. But he's going to use this workshop a lot more. I normally store my shoes in the freezer. Yeah. (laughs) Well, wait till you find out what he does store in the freezer. (laughs) It's not good. With his workshop in place, Jerry was now ready to escalate his attacks. And escalate he did. He would go on to brutally murder at least four women between 1968 and 1969. Oh, that's a short time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he only stops because he gets caught. And I was thinking, too, like in the late 60s, would that have been unheard of for the woman to not be allowed to go into the husband's shop or his office or, you know, that type of I thing? I think man cave was a thing back then. I think but so. But not to the extent of you have to intercom before you can... No. Like, you can't enter at all. For sure. All right, we're going to get into the nitty gritty. Jerry committed his first known murder on January 26, 1968. A 19-year-old woman named Linda Slauson was in Jerry Brudos's neighborhood selling encyclopedias door-to-door. And I'm not sure if any of our younger listeners can even remember having encyclopedias in the house, but that was like, I remember as a kid feeling like, oh, you were rich. If you, like, had, if a you had a full set of encyclopedias in your house, you were, I'm like, oh, my friend is so rich. Look what they have. It wasn't just the first A to D. Yeah. <laughs> Linda was a college student and sold the books to make money while going to school. 
Sadly, she made the fatal mistake of knocking on Jerry's door. She is definitely a victim of opportunity. Mm -hmm. Jerry pretended to be interested in purchasing some books from Linda. He told her to come into his workshop so he could check out the books there. He made her believe that he was really serious about buying them. And she's probably thinking, yes, I'm going to make a sale. Mm -hmm. So Linda followed Jerry into his workshop, but would never come back out alive. Once Jerry had her all to himself, he knocked her over the head with a wooden plank. Unable to fight back, Jerry strangled Linda to death. So was this his plan? Was he looking at this time to find somebody that he could strangle to death? Or was it like he was just overcome with his urges and it was all a crime of opportunity? I think it was all a crime of opportunity. Okay. So he yeah. had no forethought of, okay, this next woman I'm going to meet, I'm going to strangle her and then I'm going to do this and this and this. In his confession later, it doesn't say that. Okay. As far as I'm aware from what I could find, I think it was, he was escalating. He mm -hmm. built this room for his deviant Storage. behavior. Yeah. yeah. And then this beautiful girl walks up to his door and it's too perfect. Mm -hmm. And so he had to, in his mind. Mm -hmm. What's extra disturbing about this is that Jerry's wife and two kids were in the home at the same time. So he calmly went into the house to talk to them for a while. He gave Darcy money to go buy themselves fast food. He told them to take their time at the restaurant and just bring him something home so he could stay and work in his shop. During this entire interaction with his family, Linda lay dead on the shop floor. Apparently, soon after, a friend of Jerry showed up at the house unexpectedly, and Jerry was able to chat with him like nothing happened before sending him on his way. Which kind of goes back to that one psychiatrist saying that he has no remorse. Mm -hmm. Finally alone, Jerry was like a kid in a candy store, having a woman's body all to himself. He took his time, undressing and dressing Linda's body in different bras and underwear that he had stolen. He then proceeded to pose Linda's lifeless body in highly provocative poses. Jerry later made note of how pleased he was when he saw the red underwear that Linda was originally wearing. It was as nice as what he could have picked out for her himself. Gross. He is gross. Quite some time later, when he was finished, Jerry knew he needed to get rid of the body, but he wasn't quite ready to part with it. In order to keep a piece of her longer, Jerry grabbed a hacksaw and used it to cut off Linda's left foot. This way, he could easily keep it in his workshop freezer and take it out anytime he wanted to dress it up in different high heel shoes and take pictures of it. What? Mm -hmm. Ugh, crow's feet. Yeah, so he keeps this foot for Does months, actually. Does he keep actually. his family's food in it, too? No, I don't think so. This oh. is just in his shop. Okay. Yeah, he has a fridge out there, too. No, because he wouldn't want his wife to go out there. No. But he said having a foot made it easier because it's just a small little item that he could wrap up and then store in the freezer. Mm -hmm. So even if his wife looked in there, it's not like you're going to find a dead body. It's going to look like a roast or something. But so demented to take that out and put the shoes on it. It was yeah. like to play with for him. Jerry threw the rest of Linda Slauson's body into the Willamette River. Her body would never be found. The book company that Linda worked for didn't have any record of where Linda was that day. She was reported missing, but there was no evidence for the police to go off. Her car was later found, but had no clues to help the police know where she had been trying to sell her books. There was no struggle after all. Linda simply walked right through the front door of a killer's home like a lamb to the slaughter. Linda's death was included in Jerry's confession, but he was never formally charged because of lack of evidence. That's sad. Mm -hmm. Even when there's a confession? Yep. Yeah, but her poor family. I know. But at least he confessed to it mm -hmm. so that they knew. Yeah. On November 26, 1968, Jerry was itching for his next kill. It had been 10 months to the day since his first murder. Jerry's second victim was 23-year-old Jan Susan Whitney. 
Jan was driving home for Thanksgiving on Interstate 5 between Salem and Albany when her car broke down. Two men were with Jan. Jerry described them as hippies, but Jerry saw his opportunity and couldn't resist. He stopped and offered them a ride and told Jan he could fix her car, but he needed to get the right part. He dropped the men off and then he told Jan he just had to run into his house to grab the car part and to tell his wife he was going to help Jan fix her car. Hmm. And even mentioning his wife, that would have given her a sense of security, right? I'm just going to run in, let my wife know what I'm doing. I'll be right back. Instead of going into the house, Jerry got out of the car and hopped into the back seat where he reached around and strangled Jan to death with a leather strap. He then proceeded to have sex with her corpse. What? Mm -hmm. So we're getting into some necrophilia now. It would have been so bizarre for him to jump in the back. She'd be like, what the heck are you doing? Yeah. Before she she could even respond to him strangling her. Yeah. She wouldn't have even had time to react. Yeah. Because if he got out, she's thinking he's going to walk around the back of the car. Maybe she thinks he's just grabbing something out of the back seat. You would not be suspicious. No. But he does this in his driveway? Yeah. I was shocked too. He actually has sex with her in the car in his driveway. He just couldn't wait. What? Yeah. And what time of day is this? I'm not sure. Oh. With his family in the house. Oh, right outside. With all of his neighbors potentially watching. Yeah. Oh, man. But unfortunately, nobody saw Mm. or nobody reported anything if they did. Right. Jan was deceased, but Jerry's fun was just beginning. He took her body with him back to his workshop. And once there, he dressed her up in lingerie and took sexually suggestive photographs of her, just like he had with Linda. This time, Jerry kept her body hanging from a hook and pulley system in his workshop for several days, taking it down to dress up and have sex with. And remember that his wife and kids are in the same house, just going about their days while all of this is happening. Wouldn't they start to notice a smell? Well, that's why he only keeps her for several days. Instead of keeping a foot, Jerry cut off one of Jan's breasts. He used it to make a resin mold of her breast that he could then use as a paperweight. But I thought, what a sicko. Yeah. He's like, oh, I'm going to try this this time. After he was finished with her body, Jerry tied a piece of railroad iron to her and threw her into the Willamette River. Same river. But with the iron tied to her, she wouldn't float as far. Right. He also tossed Linda's severed foot into the river at this time because it had started to decompose too much from him bringing it Mm -hmm. in and out of the freezer. Jan's Rambler was found in a rest area off the highway near Albany, Oregon. The car was left locked and again showed no signs of a struggle. Jan had willingly got into Jerry's car with him. It was not unusual for people to hitchhike at that time. But she did have two men that saw him with her. Like he would be the last known person to see her alive. Right. There was no reports of those men giving any type of statements. It was not enough for Jerry to be suspected of anything. Okay. Yeah. She had simply vanished without a trace. Maybe they were hitchhikers too, right? They could have been. So they would have never reported her even missing. Yeah. Yeah. And she was reported missing because she was coming home for Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. Jerry got a lot more brazen with his next victim, 18-year-old Karen Sprinker. He abducted her at gunpoint from a department store parking lot in downtown Salem. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he was allegedly dressed in women's clothing at the time of the abduction. So she probably, when he came up to her, wasn't feeling threatened at all. Not at first. And when onlookers saw him, they thought it was a woman. Mm -hmm. This abduction on March 27th of 1969, only four months and one day since his last kill, he was clearly escalating. He took Karen to his workshop alive this time. He made her try on his stash of lingerie and pose so he could take pictures. He raped her and then strangled her by hanging her by the neck from the pulley in his workshop. 
So is he trying to determine if he had a better sexual experience when they're alive or when they were dead? Well, he's becoming more brazen. So when they're unconscious or dead, they're not going to fight back. But this time he wanted to try it while she was still alive. Mm-hmm. After she was dead, Jerry kept her body for a while to have sex with and then removed both of her breasts to make more molds. Apparently, he had kind of screwed up the first mold. Jerry later disposed of Karen's body by tying a six-cylinder car engine to it, using nylon cord, and threw her into the same river as his previous victims. That's awful. Karen was home from college, where she was a med student, and was supposed to meet her mother for lunch at the Mare and Frank department store in downtown Salem. Her mother waited for an hour, not knowing what was happening to her daughter. And I can't even imagine. No. Being late was out of Karen's character, so her mother was immediately worried. Her vehicle was found parked in the lot for the place where she was meeting her mom. She was so close and likely only minutes away from meeting up with her mother. Oh, that is so sad. Isn't it terrible? People did report seeing a strange-looking woman, but when they realized it was a man in drag, it freaked them out and they avoided any contact with him. Again, there was no evidence to link Jerry to this crime. She's just reported missing. Mm -hmm. There's no bodies yet. Continuing to escalate, Jerry only waited four weeks before trying to find his next victim. And we see this a lot in serial killers where first he's waited a year and then four months and now it's only four weeks. The urge just gets stronger and stronger. Yep. And the things he's doing are getting worse and worse. And he's feeling more and more invincible as he's starting to do this and getting away with it. Yeah, for sure. He would make two failed attempts before finally snatching his final victim. On April 21st, 1969, Jerry tried to abduct 24-year-old Sharon Wood from the basement floor of a Portland parking garage. She worked as a secretary and was leaving work to go meet her estranged husband to discuss details of their divorce. And I thought this poor lady was already having a bad day. That is brutal. As Sharon was looking for her car, she said she had a feeling that someone was behind her. So she started to walk towards an area that she knew would have more people. Suddenly, Jerry tapped her on the shoulder, and when she turned around, he was pointing a pistol at her. That would be so scary. Especially because she's listening to her instincts and like, I feel like someone's behind me or watching me. I'm going to go where there's more people and it's too late. So you've had that feeling before, like, oh, somebody's watching me. Are you brave enough to turn around and look? Are you like, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm just going to. Oh, I would look. I'm just going to go faster. (laughs) No, I would look. Wouldn't you? I always hate it. It takes me a while to build up the courage to do it. Like even when I get in a vehicle, I have to build up my courage before I look back because I hate the empty back seat. Honey, you're supposed to look at the back seat as you get in the car because by then it's too late if you've already gotten in and you're sitting there for a minute but sometimes I'm distracted and I don't always think to look because sometimes I do but then sometimes I get in and I'm like I didn't check the back seat and then I'm too afraid to look in the rearview mirror (laughs) no you'd already be dead by then (laughs) unless they're waiting for you to stop at your next location (laughs) aren't these wonderful things that women have to worry about when we get into our cars one thing that I have learned is it's okay to be rude in these situations Because sometimes as women, we want to be so polite and we don't want to seem weird or make someone else feel awkward. Awkward. Yeah. But if I look back and there's some weirdo staring at me or behind me and I feel weird about it, I have decided that no longer am I going to worry about how he's feeling. If I want to change the other side of the road or start walking quick or run, whatever, you do it. (laughs) You listen to too much true crime. I do. (laughs) But I think we have those instincts for a reason. Mm Mm-hmm. If the elevator door opens and some sketchy person, or even if they don't look sketchy, if you have a bad feeling about it, wait for the next elevator. Who cares if you hurt their feelings? Yeah. Or get off. (laughs) Yeah. And nine times out of 10, it's probably harmless, but you don't want to wait for that one out of 10. Yeah. So having the pistol pointed at Sharon, he tells her not to scream. 
But instantly, Sharon's fight response kicked in and she started to scream and try to get away. Jerry grabbed her and got her in a chokehold. He was about 100 pounds heavier than her, but she didn't let that stop her. Sharon kicked Jerry with her high-heeled shoes and tried twisting the gun from his hand. Because she was still screaming, Jerry put his hand over her mouth. Sharon decided to bite. She bit into the fleshy part of his palm until she drew blood. Jerry managed to wrestle her to the ground by grabbing onto her hair and slamming her head into the concrete. Just then, another car started towards them. And being the low-life coward that he is, Jerry grabbed his gun and fled the scene. And now she's seen him. Now she's seen him, yeah. yeah. And thank goodness for that car. And I remember watching an Oprah episode as a kid. I watched a lot of Oprah growing up. <laughs> but they were talking about abductions, and I'll never forget the advice that they give. They basically said fight and do all you can to not be taken to a secondary location because your chance of survival goes way down once you reach that second spot. Mm -hmm. If you get taken to a new location, the perpetrator at that point has more control over the situation. And thankfully, this is exactly what Sharon did. She fought and she did live to tell her story because of it. But then you also hear the recommendation that you shouldn't fight back and just give them what they want. This is in regards to being taken to a secondary location. So if it's like a robbery, you give them what they want. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Robbery, anything like that, you give them what they want. He's trying to get her into his car. If she had gotten into that car, she would be his victim. When the police interviewed Sharon, they had no idea that three other women were already dead. They had no idea yet the monster they were truly dealing with. The very next day, after attempting to snatch Sharon, Jerry attempted to abduct 15-year-old Gloria Jean Smith. Gloria was from Salem and was walking home from middle school. Jerry had a gun and tried to force Gloria into what was later identified as his mother's green Volkswagen car. (laughs) Thankfully, Gloria saw a woman working in a nearby yard and started to scream to her. In the commotion, Gloria was somehow able to break free. Jerry panicked and quickly took off in his car. And I thought, can you imagine later for these two women realizing what you had escaped? Yeah, You'd be so grateful. You would. And traumatized even Mm -hmm. just with the chance of having been one of his victims. Sadly, the following day on April 23rd, 1969, 22-year-old Linda Sally would not be so lucky. She was out shopping to purchase a gift for her boyfriend. Her boyfriend became worried when she didn't show up to meet him later that evening, and she also didn't show up for work. She was last seen around 5.30 p.m. leaving a jewelry store. Her car was found in the Portland's Lloyd Shopping Center parking lot with no sign of a struggle. Her boyfriend was investigated but was not deemed a suspect. Jerry had used a fake badge to tell Linda that he was an officer and said she was suspected of shoplifting. He told her to get into his car so he could take her in for questioning. He took her to his house and tied her up inside his shop. This dirtbag left her in the shop bound up while he went in and had dinner with his family. No way. Yep. So they're eating their pot roast and this poor woman is bound up inside his shop in the garage. And he must have had her mouth bound. Mm -hmm. After dinner, when he returned to his workshop, Jerry proceeded to rape and strangle Linda to death with a leather strap. Again, he played dress up and had his way with her body. Being the demented dirtbag that he is, Jerry decided that Linda's breasts were too pink to cut off. And so instead, he hung her body up on his pulley and tried to shock her body with an electrical current to see if he could make it jump. He's an electrician, remember? He inserted wire into her ribs to try and make her dance, but this experiment failed. That is sick. Yeah, so he's just playing with these bodies like an object. No regard for them at all. He eventually tied her body to a car transmission 
again using nylon cord, and dumped her body into the same Willamette River. Throughout all his attacks, Jerry was continuing to have migraines and would complain about blackouts. He was also dressing in women's clothing more frequently. He said later it was like an escape for him. So how is his wife not caught on by now? We're going to talk about his wife, Uh. of what she knows and what she doesn't. After murdering each woman, he would dress up in high heels and pleasure himself. A few weeks later, on May 10, 1969, Linda Sally's body turned up in the Long Tom River near Monroe. The Long Tom River is a tributary of the Willamette River, where Jerry dumped the bodies. Which basically just means it's a river that flows into a larger river. So Mm -hmm. the two rivers were connected. A fisherman spotted what looked like a bundle of rags, but it turned out to be Linda. Linda had to be identified by her dental records. Mm -hmm. Two days later, on May 12th, Karen Sprinker's body was found in the same area. Because then police were out looking and they found Karen's body. Police noticed that the knots used to tie these two women's bodies to car parts was unusual. This led the police to believe that the murders were committed by the same person. The two bodies dumped in the same area attached to car parts didn't trip them off to that? (laughs) Well, you can never be too sure. (laughs) I mean, anytime you have an investigation, you want as much evidence to kind of connect that. And so the knots were so unusual that that was, okay, we for sure know, or we're pretty confident that this person is the same. They also noticed that Karen's breasts had been removed and that she was dressed in a black bra that was too big for her. The bra was stuffed with brown paper towel to fill it out and absorb bodily fluids. So he had dressed her before he threw her in there. Okay. And so underneath was this black bra that was too big. He had removed her breasts. So he put paper towel in there so that it wouldn't leak all over the place Mm. and to fill out the bra. That's weird. That is weird. It's like these are like his paper dolls or something. Both autopsies determined that the cause of death was asphyxiation. During this time that Jerry was on a frenzied spree, he began trying to set up blind dates for himself through the Oregon State University. What? He's married. Well, yeah, he's married, but he's murdering and raping women. So, <laughs> But this is how he's going to find his next victim. No, this is actually how he gets caught because okay. he's now murdered his last victim. I heard in one documentary that he would call a girl's dormitory and ask to speak with a random girl's name. And a lot of the time it worked. A girl with that name would come to the phone. So he just picked a name out of the hat. It's like, hey, is Jennifer there? And he would luck out if a Jennifer was there and would come yeah. to the phone. He told them he was a Vietnam veteran and would then try to charm her into going on a date with him. One of the students later admitted to meeting Jerry for a date. She said the heavyset man with light hair and freckles freaked her out when he started talking about women going missing and the ones who were being found dead in the river and asked her how she knew he wouldn't do something like that to her. Oh. What a dirtbag. Right? He wanted to see her reaction. And just, are these girls in the university, are they scared? Mm -hmm. Are they scared of this guy? Like, now that the bodies have been found? And just so bold to say that to Mm -hmm. her. Red flag. Run. Run. So she does. She runs right to the police. When she reported it to the police, they asked her to set up a second date with this man the next time he called so that they could catch him. Could you imagine coming up with an excuse to leave that date early? No, I got a stomach ache. I don't know what you'd say. Because that's even before cell phones. You can't even like text your friend to be like, call with an emergency. The woman agreed. And a few days later, Jerry called her dorm and made plans to meet up with the college student. Jerry showed up for the date and the police were able to take him in for questioning. He was definitely a strong suspect for the newly discovered murders, but they didn't have quite enough evidence to arrest him. Well, they just have to do a search warrant. Mm -hmm. Police noted how calm Jerry was while they questioned him. They said this meant one of two things. Either he was innocent or he was clever and arrogant and didn't have any remorse for what he was doing. 
It's the latter. It's the latter. And that does describe him perfectly. Yeah. On May 26, police were finally able to gather enough cause to enter Jerry's home in the 3100 block of Center Street Northeast for a search. One of the biggest contributing factors in getting the warrant was that one of the women who he had failed at kidnapping was able to identify him as the man who tried to take her. They were also able to start linking his location to the places where some of the girls had gone missing. Inside his workshop, police found copper wire that had been cut with the same tool that cut the nylon rope found attached to the weighed down victims. They also found rope, the breast mold, pictures of female victims, some of which had their heads cut out of the pictures to make the pictures more anonymous. There were pictures of himself as well in women's underwear, and police discovered his collection of shoes and underwear. Can you just imagine finding all that stuff and just thinking, oh my gosh, what have we just stumbled across? Police also found knots tied in a similar fashion to the ones found on the bodies. Which, by the way, police were surprised that Jerry was able to even lift the women with the attached car parts to throw them into the river. So he was strong. Yeah, because there was like a railing. He would have had to lift them over the railing to get them into the Hmm. river. He doesn't just roll them in there with the car parts. Jerry was first arrested with a charge of armed assault for the attempted kidnapping of Gloria Smith. On June 3, 1969, Jerry was finally charged with the murder of Karen Sprinker, Linda Sally, and Jan Whitney, even though they had not found Jan's body yet. Later that same month, just three days before his trial was set to start, Jerry pled guilty on June 27 to all three counts of murder, and it was the same day that Jan's body was found in the Willamette River near Independence. So I'm pretty sure the discovery of Jan's body is what motivated him to confess. To confess, yeah. And he originally had pled guilty by reason of insanity. However, experts believed that he was sane and said he knew exactly what he was doing when he took these women's lives. They also noted his lack of remorse for his actions. He was not diagnosed with anything that would excuse his violent acts, and he was believed to be a danger to society without chance of rehabilitation. Judge Val Slopper sentenced Jerry to three consecutive life sentences with the chance of parole and transferred him to Oregon State Penitentiary. They missed one. They did miss one. And like I said earlier, since Linda Slauson's body was never recovered and there were no photographs of her in his collection, Jerry was never formally charged with her murder, despite his confession regarding her horrific death. He is also a strong suspect in at least six more murders, but he was never charged with any of those deaths. Oh, wow. Jerry did try to appeal his sentencing, but lost. One of his reasons is that he said he was suffering from hypoglycemia at the time that he offered his guilty plea. So it shouldn't have been accepted. What? <laughs> yep. He's like, I had hypoglycemia. I shouldn't have been able to admit to murder. Oh my goodness. He also said he assumed that his life sentences would be concurrent rather than consecutive. He thought he could yep. serve his time all at the same time. Doesn't happen, buddy. One of the detectives who helped track down Jerry said, quote, he was one of the true monsters of the United States or the world, perhaps. The parole board seemed to agree with this statement because after multiple parole hearings, the Oregon Parole Board finally told Jerry on June 21st, 1995, that, quote, you will be in prison for the rest of your life and there will be no further parole hearings. Stop asking. You're not getting out, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> and nor should he. No, not at all. No. Especially since he hasn't even been convicted of all the crimes he committed. Right. We know he did four and possibly six more or who knows even how many, really. Yeah. He was out of control. He was still allowed to have an informal interview every two years. 
but most only lasted about 30 minutes before shutting him down. Because he's so unremorseful. Yeah, they still had to just entertain him. And okay, because every two years he's allowed, but it was informal. And 30 minutes later, they're like, okay, nope, sorry, bye. During one of his parole hearings, he was asked why he chose to torture and murder all those women. He reportedly declined to answer. He later explained that a public session wasn't the proper place to answer that question. He said, quote, This information I wanted to give to the parole board without it becoming public record or reading it in the newspaper. I have no intention of burying my soul. He also said he was trying to get on with his life and didn't want to dwell on what happened in the past. And I thought, ask the families of your victims mm-hmm. how they feel about that, Jerry. I'm pretty sure they're still dwelling on the past. Jerry said he felt like he had grown as a person, was more stable, and was ready to rejoin society. Thank goodness no one agreed with him. Yeah, society's not ready for Jerry again. Exactly. While incarcerated, Jerry somehow managed to get permission to receive women's shoe catalogs. What? Yep. They were just catalogs, but for Jerry, they were like his porn. It's contraband. Is porn contraband in jail? I don't know. Maybe it is. But I don't think they would be giving a sexual predator porn magazine. Yeah. And so this was a way for him to get around that. He just wanted shoe catalogs. And they're like, okay. But with his history, wouldn't they have been tipped off to that? He swindled it somehow because he did get them in prison. Jerry had reportedly been a model prisoner. He used his electrician and computer skills to work inside the prison. He was able to obtain a couple of educational degrees. And he was also allowed to roam the prison freely. This is after so many years of him being there. But even still, what prisoner gets to roam the prison freely? Jerry. And he gets shoe catalogs. He blamed his brutal actions on his mother, rather than take responsibility himself. Of course. A reporter claimed that while on a tour of the prison, Jerry had shaken her hand. She said that she immediately pulled her hand away. It gave her chills, and she could tell that something wasn't right with him. She said, quote, Humans have an instinct, and it's important to heed it. Lives depend on it. Absolutely. Uh, Amen to that. But as soon as he touched her hand, she got the heebie-jeebies. No thanks. And I think that would. A person as evil as him would just exude out of him. Mm -hmm. He's completely unremorseful. Yeah. Yeah. So scary. I would never want to come face to face with someone like Jerry. Speaking of instincts, let's now talk for a moment about Darcy, Jerry's wife. Who had no instincts. (laughs) Do you think she knew what her husband was doing? I don't know how you wouldn't know what your husband was doing. I don't know. Many people believe that she had to have known what was going on with her husband or could have even been an accomplice to his crimes. Because that happens sometimes too. There are some sources that indicate that Darcy tried to help clean up evidence as well as help Jerry escape. Allegedly, Jerry had convinced her to pack up the car with the family and head for the Canadian border. These sources say that she tried to cross the border with Jerry lying down in the backseat of the car covered in a blanket, resulting in him getting caught. I couldn't confirm this, but it could be likely. Everybody runs to the Canadian border. That's right. We don't want you. We're not that nice. (laughs) Darcy claimed that she had no idea the heinous acts that her husband was committing, but she did sense some oddities in his behavior as time went on. So was she just an ostrich with her head stuck in the sand? Possibly. Noticing things, but I'm just going to ignore that. I think so. Because she does Mm -hmm. name a few things. And one of those things she says is that one time Jerry approached her while dressed in women's underwear. And she said she didn't know how to react. And so they never spoke of it afterwards. So he was testing the waters. He was testing the waters. She didn't know what to do. And so it was just awkward. And then they didn't talk about it. Darcy admitted to seeing the paperweight the one that was made out of the breast mold, but didn't know how it was made and accepted the story that her husband was telling her. 
She also found some naked pictures of women, but let that incident slide as well. And the paperweight, she wouldn't know if, if he made that, if someone gave that to him, like where he found that. She had no idea, but yeah. didn't want to approach it. Yep. Just stuck her head in the sand. She did. To her and their friends, Jerry seemed like a mild-mannered family man. He never swore. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He wasn't abusive. He didn't have a bad temper. So this was not something that they were suspecting him of doing. Maybe even more reason for her then to turn a blind eye towards what his other indiscretions were. Right. Because it sounded like he was an okay husband and father. Mm -hmm. and And he wasn't beating her. Yeah, no, he was providing for the family. So she was just letting those things slide. Yeah. And if we think about, too, her being raised in the 40s, women were supposed to please their husbands and men ruled the house and Mm -hmm. they could do what they wanted. So I feel like we can't victim blame her too much. No. But Darcy was actually arrested. What? Yeah. And she was tried as his accomplice, but was found not guilty. There was absolutely no evidence to prove that she knew what was going on or that she had participated in any way. But they did go there. I mean, it's good police work. They have to figure that out, right? When you have a whole torture cave, basically, in your home. Yeah, it would be hard for anyone to buy that. She didn't know those things were in her garage. Right. Like, just because her husband asked her never to go in the garage, she never did? It was locked. She did not have access. She would have had to, like, find his hidden key or I don't know. That's what I would do. Take the door off the hinges. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That would never even happen in our situations. Be like, sorry, sir. Yeah, that's your first red flag. Anyone listening, if your spouse, male or female, has a room that you're not allowed in or a desk or a closet or anything, I think you better go look. (laughs) Privacy is one thing. That's a whole nother level. Yep, absolutely. In 1970, Darcy divorced Jerry. She moved out of Oregon with their two children and reportedly changed all their names. Oh, good. Those children need to be protected. Oh, for sure. And that's why I didn't even put their original names in there because I do feel like she was just another victim in his wake. Even if she had some suspicions or Mm -hmm. inklings. At 5.10 a.m. on Tuesday, March 28, 2006, Jerome Henry Brudos died from cancer at the age of 67 while incarcerated at the Oregon State Penitentiary. No one claimed his body and he was buried in the prison cemetery. At the time of his death, he was the longest incarcerated inmate in the whole state of Oregon. Well, that's surprising because he didn't actually live that long. He served a total of 37 years. Yeah. Jerry's sick crimes have been covered in pop culture. He is portrayed in an episode of Mindhunter, season one, episode seven and eight, if you're interested. And here's our connection to Silence of the Lambs that you brought up at the beginning. The actor who played Buffalo Bill in the Silence of the Lambs based his performance in part on Jerry Brudos. Yeah. J.K. Rowling based the serial killer in her book, Troubled Blood, in part on Jerry as well. Author Anne Rule wrote a book about Jerry and his crimes called Lust Killer. A lot of his childhood experiences I got from her book that we Mm, talked about today. Interesting. It is really well researched. If you are wanting more information on this case, I recommend getting her book. And that is the heinous and disturbing case of an extremely wicked and heartless killer, the disgusting necrophile, lowlife dirtbag, Jerry Brunos. (laughs) The one you thought you were taking a break with. (laughs) I know. I was like, I'll do this one. It won't be as bad. (laughs) That was pretty disturbing. It was pretty bad. (laughs) But I had learned about this case a long time ago, and so I had forgotten a lot of those details until I started researching. But Mm -hmm. once I was researching, I was in, and I was like, no, I'm doing this case. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, though. Mm -hmm. And I'm so shocked that he was able to get a shoe catalog. In prison. I know. It doesn't seem like he should have been allowed that. No, not at all. He should not have been allowed a shoe catalog. But I guess it would be on the approved list, right? A catalog. It's not porn. It's not something deviant for most people. 
Right, but for him, it was. For him, it was. But if it's on the list where it's cleared. Yeah. So there you go. We've covered a fetish killer now on our podcast. Who knew that the love of shoes could drive you to that madness? Right. Feet are not my thing. Like even to go get a pedicure to have somebody touch my feet. That's right. We got pedicures one time together, didn't we? Yep. It's difficult for me. I love it. You can touch my feet all you want. No. No. <laughs> and girls nowadays with the gas prices are selling pictures of their feet. So there's, oh. it's definitely a common fetish. Yes. Right? Yeah. But it wasn't the feet. It was the, it was the shoes. shoes. Yeah. But anyways, go and buy yourself a new pair of shoes. <laughs> Just kidding. I would say the takeaway of this one is to trust your instincts. Absolutely. Yeah. Because those two women were saved because they trusted their instincts. Right. So while you're waiting for us to bring you another episode, trust your instincts. Yep. And be safe out there. And congratulations to our winner. Yeah, our giveaway winner on our social media. Thank you for everybody who participated in that. And we'll be doing another one soon. See ya. Bye. it just go <laughs> then you're editing my episode <laughs> jerry openly admitted jerry openly admitted 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 it. jerry would go and play at the local junkyard yard yard junkyard we're gonna go to the yard everybody <laughs> my milkshake brings all the boys to the yard <laughs> haven't you heard that my no. milkshake brings all the boys to the yard you haven't heard that song no. you know the most <laughs> interesting songs ever <laughs> I even posted a meme during COVID about how my milkshake can only bring five to seven boys to the yard during COVID. He attempted to dig a dunnel. A dunnel? <laughs> to dig a dunnel. What the heck is a dunnel, Christy? I give you five points if you can figure it out. And then he's acting all chivalrous. Chivalrous. Yeah, he's acting all chivalrous. I can't say that word. Chivalrous. He's acting chivalrous. all chivalrous. Chivalrous? No, I don't even know the word. <laughs> We're going to pause for <laughs> Melissa's growling stomach. Okay, you need to eat something. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Guess I'll go. Thanks. Spend more time with you today. All right, where um, were we? What were we I were talking about? I have no this? idea. <laughs> it's going to be rough this ending. <laughs> we have a guest co-host today. <laughs> Melissa's stomach has a lot to say. It is making an appearance. If you heard any rumblings in the background, I couldn't edit it out because it was her stomach. <laughs> okay, let's wrap this up, people. Oh, I need a snack. You do. And a nap. A snack and a nap. Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. 
Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.